Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. What's going on out there? I hope you're well, wherever you are. Today on the program, we're gonna do some craft work. My guest is Peter Turchi. He is the author of seven books and the co-editor of three anthologies. Most recently, he published a book entitled Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before and other essays on writing fiction. It is available now from Trinity University Press. Today, I'm gonna be talking with Peter Turchi about how to write more dynamic scenes through shifting power dynamics. For those of you new to the program or for those of you new to craft work, this is a new series that I'm doing on the podcast, wherein professional writers will teach the craft of writing and also will teach lessons related to the business of publishing. So there's nothing really to do. These episodes will show up in the feed just like any other episode, and they will be in addition to the interviews that I have always done and have been doing for the past 11 years. So. It's a new thing. It just launched a little over a week ago, I believe. The inaugural Craftwork episode is now live in the feed. It features author Matt Bell teaching how to write action. And the response from people has been overwhelming. Listeners have been really excited about the series, and I'm gratified by that. I'm also kicking myself because I can't believe it took me 11 years to realize that you guys wanted this kind of content. So I'm pleased to be offering it. I hope you like it. And please let me know what you think. The email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. I'm happy to hear your thoughts. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive is available. Everything is available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls by design. I don't like paywalls. You don't like paywalls. Nobody likes paywalls. So I'm trying to stay away from them. I'm trying to make this content accessible as widely as possible, but the trade-off is that I need you as a regular listener of this show to support this show so that I can continue to make this show. So for as little as $1 a month, you can support the Other People podcast over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash otherpplpod, $1 a month. $3 a month, 5 10 20 whatever you can swing. It's a sliding scale. As you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I do a weekly email newsletter. Did you know that? Once a week, an email newsletter from me to you. It is free, and you can sign up for that at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. I will let you know about developments on the podcast, new episodes, and I will share essentially an enumerated list of things that I have been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. It's pretty straightforward. It's once a week. I will not inundate you with emails. So sign up for the newsletter if that sounds interesting. I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this show wherever you listen to this show. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen, give the show a rating. And if it is possible to write a review, write a review. This really helps. It helps the show find new listeners. It helps the show in the algorithm. So please rate and review the Other People Podcast. The Other People Podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? There's another people YouTube channel 
Go find the show on YouTube. You can watch these conversations. This is a relatively new development. I am now doing video. You can watch my conversation with Peter Turchi over on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the Other People channel, click the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch clips or highlights of these conversations. So video highlights are available on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter. So wherever you happen to be on social media, find the show, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, the handle on, on uh, Twitter is at other PPL. Follow the show. Say hello. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a work of autofiction. I don't know. It's out there. If you want to know about me, you can read it. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So today on the podcast, on the latest edition of this new Craftwork series, my guest is Peter Turchi. His most recent book is called Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before and other essays on writing fiction. It is available from Trinity University Press. Peter's other books include Amuse and Amaze, Writing as Puzzle, Mystery, and Magic, and then another one called Maps of the Imagination, The Writer as Cartographer. Peter Turchi currently teaches at the University of Houston and in Warren Wilson's MFA program for writers. I'm just delighted to have Peter Turchi on this program today to teach us how to write more dynamic scenes through shifting power dynamics. So without any further ado, this is my conversation with Peter Turchi. What I'm referring to there are the uh, changes in power or authority in a given scene, even over the course of a very short passage, where different characters demonstrate whatever strengths, insight, knowledge that they have, and how that can shift, even over the course, as I said, of a, of a simple conversation. So you talk about in your writing different kinds of sources of power. There are primal sources and then other maybe less obvious sources. Yeah, primal sources of power would include physical strength or the, you know, having a weapon that could uh, give you authority, if that's the right word, over someone else. There's sexual attraction, which is, you know, a natural source of, we'll call it power. And then there are things like wealth. Uh, there are things like positions of authority, judge in a courtroom or a policeman at a traffic stop, a teacher in a classroom, all have authority based on their their position, at least until they do something to lose that authority. There could be something like, oh, in, in Casablanca, the film, they're the uh, transit papers, the uh, papers that give someone the ability to, to uh, leave Casablanca. And so the possession of those papers uh, gives someone a certain uh, power over a situation. The, it can take a lot of different forms, including cleverness, insight, knowledge, maybe even just wit. If you're at a party and someone is telling telling funny stories and everyone is captivated, that person at least temporarily has an authority over the rest of the room. Got it. And so if you're a writer and you're working on a chapter in a novel or a short story and things feel flat or you feel stuck, what you recommend is to have characters draw on their power reserves, or at least to consider that. What exactly does that mean? Like how might someone get unstuck by focusing on this? 
It's very useful, I find, to think of the weaknesses or vulnerabilities in a character who generally seems dominant or assertive or powerful in a story, and also to think of the uh, the greatest strengths of a character who might seem relatively, you know, without authority in a story, because we all have moments where we can demonstrate what we do best, whether that's cooking, you know, whether whether that's, uh, I don't know, organizing our daily lives. And there are moments that those can be activated in a story, which can shift the power dynamic, which is particularly useful when you find yourself stuck in a scene or maybe in an entire story where you're so focused on the main character's particular problem, their dilemma, what they want, what they need, what they're trying to do, uh, that you find yourself limiting all the action in the story to whether or not that's going to happen or what impediments there are uh, to that. And there's a lot of great fiction, classical fiction, theater, screenplays that surprise us by having characters uh, reveal aspects of themselves that we hadn't anticipated. But it's easy to forget that when you're working on a story and you're so focused on one particular thing. And another aspect to this has to do with numbers. And something you write about is how, you know, first-year students or students who are early in their uh, attempts at writing fiction will often write uh, about power dynamics between characters in a one-to-one way. You'll have two characters kind of squaring off. And what you advocate for, or at least encourage people to explore, is adding characters to increase the possibilities for shifting power dynamics, correct? Yeah, we can often, and it's not just beginning students. In early drafts, you can lock yourself into a situation where you've got two characters in conversation. Somebody wants something, somebody else doesn't want to give it to them, and you're trying to figure out how they're going to argue this out or what's going to happen between them. But by introducing another character who might introduce another topic entirely, you can change the dynamic of the scene and also open up ways to reveal those people and maybe even expand the world of the story in some useful way. One of my favorite examples is from a terrific uh, film, A Separation, the Iranian film that won uh, Best Foreign Film a few years ago. And it opens with a woman talking to a judge, and she's complaining that her husband won't let her leave the country. She wants to leave the country with her daughter because she says Iran is no place to raise a young girl. And he won't leave with her, and he won't give her a divorce. And we immediately start to think, oh, this woman is oppressed. This woman's got a you know, a terrible husband. This court system is probably going to rule against her. We understand this story. But then the husband gets to speak. And the husband says he's the only person who can take care of his father. And his father has dementia and isn't able to move. And immediately the problem gets more complicated. And the entire movie works that way. Every time another character is introduced, we see a new perspective on the situation. We understand their justification. And the beautiful result is that the world of these characters starts to feel as complicated as the world we live in. Well, speaking of that, I want to have you read something that you yourself wrote about. And I believe this is drawn on personal experience. This is a true story, correct? This is the kind of thing that happens every day. This is just one of the things that happened while I was thinking about this essay. Okay. So why don't we have you read it just so we can illustrate for listeners uh, a story drawn from real life wherein we have shifting power dynamics at play. Here we go. Until recently, my wife and I lived in Arizona, where she played in a community orchestra. 
Many of the people who attended the orchestra concerts were related to one of the musicians in some way, and the rest tended to be older folks. I am in no way a youngster, but as I shuffled past the frail, elderly couple seated at the end of my row one night, the sheer contrast made me feel like a teenager. I sat down and, like a teenager, began fiddling with my phone, checking email, sending texts, all the usual. The woman beside me, who might have been in her early 80s, said in a surprisingly strong voice, Can you get the score on that? Sure, I said, smiling like a minor god of technology. Score of what? At that, the woman gave me a look of something like surprise and pity. How could I be so young and virile and yet so ignorant? Marquette Syracuse, she said. I'm pulling for Marquette, but Albert, she gestured toward the man I assumed to be her husband, who was absorbed in the concert program, says Syracuse is going to win. I tapped the screen of my phone a few times and reported that Syracuse was up by two late in the first half. As I did, I noticed that the woman's left hand, wrinkled and discolored by liver spots, was freshly bandaged and badly bruised. I fell last night, she explained. I got up in the middle of the night and tripped on the carpet or something. I reached out for the dresser but missed, then fell on this hand. Hurt something awful. I made a vague, sympathetic sound. I was hoping it was bad enough that we couldn't fly tomorrow, she said. We're supposed to go to Rochester, and I do not want to go to Rochester. I told Albert, look, now we can't go. And he was so angry with me. He gets angry. He accused me of falling on purpose. As I was thinking of a way to ask what horror awaited them in Rochester, she continued. He bandaged me up himself. He doesn't like for me to see the doctor. She turned toward me to say that part, and for the first time, I noticed a bruise on her cheekbone. It looked older, less vivid than the bruise on her hand. At the same moment, Albert, without looking up from the program, reached over and rested his hand on his wife's knee. But rested isn't quite accurate. He put his hand on her knee and, spreading his thumb and forefinger, applied pressure to either side of her kneecap. Okay, so let's take listeners through this in a granular kind of way or a slow motion kind of way so that we can really illustrate to them how power dynamics shift in this story. We have you and an elderly couple at the same orchestra performance. And what we immediately learn or what we, er we learn early on is that you are younger and in better physical condition than the elderly couple, correct? Right. And so I'm feeling kind of younger than my age, feeling all pleased with myself. And that's like kind of power, right? That's a kind of power. Sure. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if somebody in this row has to do something, I'm probably in charge. I've, I'm on top of things. And then pretty quickly things shift because we have this uh, elderly woman expressing interest in the score of a, I believe, a basketball game. Right. And even before that, she asked me the if I can get the score on my phone. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, she doesn't know how these smartphones work. And sure, I can get any information you want. Tell me. That's why I have that little line, like a minor god of technology. But <laughs> but she refers to the uh, game, and I personally uh, don't pay much attention to March Madness, and so I had no idea what she was talking about. And that's where she gave me that look of pity as if I were, you know, ignorant of the ways of the world. So suddenly you're not quite as high on your high horse, feeling like a minor god. All of a sudden she's knocked you back. The power dynamics have shifted a little bit. But then you notice that this woman is injured. She has a physical injury to her hand, which 
maybe tips things back in your direction pretty quickly. Yeah, it's nicely complicated because she both has this knowledge of March Madness that I don't. And she's got this, you know, wound, which doesn't necessarily mean she's uh, weak, but it kind of complicates our, complicates our perception of her just a bit. And then she starts to describe how she got the injury. And we learn that her husband, who is kind of tuned out, right? He's not really dialed into what you guys are talking about. He's watching the performance. He doesn't seem super warm, at least in this little bit that we learn uh, about. And she's talking about how she injured herself and he doesn't like for her to go to the doctor, which is sort of strange. Yeah. And I don't, I never found out the answer to that, why that was the case. But, but what I love about this example is that Albert becomes this ominous figure in the background without saying a word. And he doesn't do anything that, you know, you would normally think of as, as powerful. He just rests his hand on her knee. But as I said, it felt a a little suspicious the way he seemed to apply just enough pressure to communicate to her. Right. So the squeeze of her knee is where the power shifts to him, right? So he's been kind of out of the picture for most of the scene, but then right here at the end, you know, he's kind of looming this silent, ominous figure. And then he gives this squeeze that you notice and suddenly he becomes a potential threat. Right. And you know, not only that they're communicating, but it seems likely that he's telling her to stop telling this story that she's said a little too much. Right. Okay. So this is a great little illustration. And we should say for listeners that it actually ended okay, right? This was not a situation where this man, it turned out that they were happily married for like 50 years, right? (laughs) Not only that they're happily married, but it was wonderful. She said that Albert had been her intern when they were young and they had an affair. She said, because that's what you do with your interns. (laughs) It turns out she was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I mean, this is that right there uh, just is a, a nice reminder that sometimes we can have these scenes uh, play out in our head or that perception and reality can be at odds with one another. You think you're seeing one thing when in fact it's something entirely different. Absolutely. And as writers, it's very good to take advantage of those moments, those either mistaken, mistaken perceptions or those unfolding understandings. So I want to talk next about a related issue, which is context and how context can cause power dynamics to shift rapidly uh, between characters in in real life and in a, in a piece of fiction. So what does that mean? Why is context important? Oh, there are some easy illustrations. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're stuck out in the middle of the desert, your car breaks down and your phone's out of juice, you are in bad shape. And the fact that you might have, you know, a bag full of cash in the trunk doesn't necessarily help you out immediately. I always think of a student I had a couple of years ago who had been a high school football star, a lineman, so a big boy, and uh, he had become a weightlifter in college, really strong guy, barely fit into a chair, and that was the first thing everybody recognized about him, but he was a very sad puppy because a girl had broken his heart, and the fact that he could have bench-pressed anybody in the room made absolutely no difference he was, uh, he was heartbroken. And so context makes a difference because the authority you might have in a certain situation or the power you might have in a certain situation may do you no good once the context is changed. And you say that lesser fiction uh, often suffers from contextual one-dimensionality. What does that mean? 
Yeah, well, a kind of fun example is um, is from The Princess Bride when you have the man in black who has to uh, get past the uh, three sort of, you know, comic uh, comic villains that he has to overcome. So he has to engage in a sword fight with Inigo Montoya, and then he has to engage in a battle of strength with Fezzik the giant, and then he has to get, engage in a battle of wits. And very compliantly, he only sword fights against the sword fighter. He only engages in battle of strength with a giant and only engages in battle of wits with the most clever of the, or who he thinks is the most clever of the three. But he could easily use his sword and run through the most clever of the three. And so there's, there's in, in adventure films, uh, but also sometimes in fiction, we have characters go head to head without thinking about the other possibilities for what they might be capable of or how someone might change the terms of a particular conflict. Another thing that you note is that power can often be disguised. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, you could, as in my example from the concert, you could have someone who's physically weak yet uh, exerts great authority. In the uh, novel uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, uh, there's a man who is wheelchair-bound who has complete authority over his family. He dictates from that wheelchair. And that's a situation we all know from life, that someone may seem to be weak in some way and yet exert some sort of authority. So when we turn to classic literature uh, and look for examples of power dynamics at work, and a really kind of high level, uh, you know, example of an author using this to great effect. You you do a great job of explaining how the Hemingway short story, a short, the short happy life of Francis Macomber, has multiple tiers of power. We have the the master hunter Robert Wilson, who's kind of the hunting guide. Then we have the narrator, who is I believe it's the narrator, right? It's is. Uh, Francis McComber, is that right? The story's in third person. In third person, right. Okay, so forgive my memory. And then you have Margot, who is the woman, you know, who is Francis McComber's wife or significant other who's along for the ride. And you have these three characters who are interacting with one another and power dynamics are shifting rapidly. It's The story is just a great illustration of this topic and, and it's bold in what it does. And so it's easy to recognize what's happening. But as you said, uh, Francis is the client. He's the one who's paying for the safari that they're on. And so he's got a certain authority because he's the client and he needs to be catered to. He's also uh, he's also got some money uh, and and that turns out to be important to his relationship with Margot. And we also hear, I think he's a uh, He's good at racket sports, which has absolutely no relevance to the story. Somewhere else it would do him good, but on the safari, it doesn't come into play. Margot is a beauty, and uh, the weakness to that is that she's uh, aging out a little bit. I know this is a terrible way to talk about uh, women, but this is how the world works in Hemingway's story. And uh, she knows that she can't trade up many more times, given her age. And then uh, Wilson is not only the expert because he's leading the safari, but he's also uh, kind of defining the moral ter- terms of the story. He's the one who decides uh, what's what can be done on the hunt and what can't be done. He's the one who points out that it's not 
embarrassing or not wrong to be afraid when you're confronting a lion, say, but to injure an animal and turn and run, which is what Francis McComer has done as the story begins, is a very bad thing to have done. And so we understand the moral code that is being imposed on these characters while they're there. And over the course of the story, we see Francis McComer, who acted badly, acted like a coward, and also, you know, acted poorly as a hunter by running away from this injured animal and not finishing it off. We see him gain his courage. Why? Because Margot, seeing him weakened, decides that this is her opportunity to sleep with Robert Wilson and to have a little fun. Wilson is not opposed to taking advantage of the perks that come with his job. And you would think this would render Francis even weaker. But in fact, he gets so angry that he decides nothing really matters. And so he goes back out on the hunt and acts much more courageously. And when he does, Margot realizes that he could leave her. And now she's in a bad position. Things get even more complicated because uh, Wilson has uh, told them what the kind of rules of the hunt are. And at one point, they're in a a safari jeep as they're pursuing one of the animals and they uh, shoot. And Margot reminds him that he had said this isn't to be done. And he said, oh, they got carried away and it wouldn't look very good if people found out about this. And so she has something on him. And so the authority among the three of them uh, changes over the course of the story more than once. And the story keeps opening up uh, so that at any given moment, one of them is, we'll say, on top. One of them has a power over the other two. And then that rotates as we uh, as we see the terms of the discussion or the terms of the action change. Yeah, this really is a great illustration of how you know, going from a a head-to-head two-character situation and just adding that third multiplies possibilities for the story and for the drama. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, you know, in an early conception, you could imagine the story is, will McComer overcome his cowardice? Can Can he reclaim his honor by doing the right thing on the hunt? And it would be easy to write that story, and it's the kind of story that we see all the time. But by adding Margot and and his other vulnerability, which is the fact that he could lose his wife, Hemingway is able to find a way to motivate McComer beyond just him changing his mind, which is often a problem in stories. You know, we're trying to figure out how people's behavior changes, and we need them to change their mind about something. But often in life, that happens indirectly. It, it doesn't happen simply because we say, well, I need to be better tomorrow. Something needs to cause that change. Another thing that this story does is that it teaches the reader that to have power over someone else is to have the potential to act. Potential is a big word uh, when it comes to the power dynamics between these characters and the way that they shift so rapidly. Right. That's a great reminder. So, so when Francis knows that Margot could cheat on him or leave him, He's, you know, weakened to some extent by that. He doesn't want to lose her. But as soon as he, as soon as she cheats on him, as soon as she sleeps with Wilson, well, the deed is done. And so he has no more to lose on that score. And so he's uh, kind of reinvigorated by the fact that he's on his own. And in the same way, Margot has a certain power over Wilson when she would be able to tell the authorities that they hunted from the Jeep. But if she were to do that, of course, she would have expended her power and then he could 
that doesn't happen in the story, but he could either call on his friends or associates to defend him, or he could find some other way to explain away what happened. So often it's the potential to do something that gives us power over somebody else. And then, it, like as you say, once power is expended, it's lost, right? I mean, usually. Yeah, that's the that's the end of the story. Hemingway leaves it ambiguous. We don't know whether Margot. I hate to spoil the story for anyone who hasn't gotten to it, but uh, Margot fires and Francis dies, and whether she was firing to hit him and kill him or whether she was trying to protect him, we'll never know. You know the reader's left to decide that for him or, her, or herself. But what we do know is that at that point, Francis is out of the picture, and Wilson has the power to either turn her in for a murder or to protect her and say it was an accident. And so now all the authority has shifted back to Wilson. So for people listening who might want to improve upon this or try this out, what is an exercise that you could offer people to help them sharpen this part of their their writing? Yeah, the, the exercise that I, I like to do myself and that I, I give students is to have three characters in a scene and to give each of them some source of authority, which could be a particular knowledge, could be a particular skill, could be an object, although that's not typically as useful. And what I say for the sake of the exercise is that it shouldn't be physical power. We'll try to avoid you know, knife fights, wrestling, anything like that in this particular scene, because it's always more interesting to, to work on the psychology of these moments. So we have three characters. Each has some sort of potential for authority. And over the course of the scene, we see each one come into play. So we see in miniature what we see in the Hemingway story. And to do that, it often means thinking about how the how the focus of the scene, what's being debated or what is trying to be achieved by the characters has to change based on what each character is thinking about or what each character cares about. And that almost always leads to a more dynamic scene than one character who wants something or one character who's preparing for something and another character who's somehow standing in the way. So just to review here, so people are clear, you have three characters, each of them have some particular power or authority. You prefer for it not to be like a primal, like a, you know, knife fights, wrestling, weapons, uh, violent arguments. Um, And then you also, I think, uh, tend to recommend that each character have a different source of power, correct? Right. That it's not, uh, that every character doesn't have a different piece of knowledge to add to the story, for instance, but that that they draw on uh, completely different resources. So in the example of the Hemingway story, Margot's got her her sexual attraction. Francis has got his role as the client and also the money that attracted uh, Margot to him. And then Wilson has the knowledge of the hunt. He's got the superior knowledge of the situation that they're in. And in your experience as a teacher, what are, I think you say there are two common results that tend to unfold whenever you have students do this exercise. What are those? Well, uh, as I just said, one of the things that this most always becomes the most dynamic scene in the story, the most complex and interesting scene in the story. And it almost always changes the terms of the story in some way because it opens the story out, removing it from a single conflict or a single issue to a larger world. 
Well, this has been extremely helpful and illuminating, and I'm wondering where people can, if you could just share with us where people can find you on the internet, what books you have out there. I know you have a new craft book out, right? I do, yeah. It's called Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before, uh, because it's the third book I've uh, written about craft. There's uh, Maps of the Imagination, the writer is cartographer, and a muse in a maze, uh, writing as puzzle, mystery, and magic. And now this, now this new book. I, of course, have a website, which is just my name, peterturchy.com. And in addition to information about the books, there are some documents there which uh, people have told me they found helpful about how to put together a writing group that can serve your work well, about how to make the most of your own reading, how to, how to learn as much as you can from the fiction you enjoy reading. And then uh, there's a list of I'm not sure now, dozens of craft books that various people have told me they found helpful. Well, Peter, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I, I congratulate you on the publication of this new book and just really appreciate your time. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was Peter Turchi teaching us how to write more dynamic scenes through shifting power dynamics. Peter is the author of several books, most recently, a book entitled Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before, and other essays on writing fiction. It is available from Trinity University Press. Go get that wherever you get your books. You can find Peter Turchi on the internet at peterturchi.com. The Other People podcast is offered freely, and it now includes this new Craftwork series. These episodes will be easy to differentiate in the Other People podcast feed. They will show up just like any other episode but Craftwork episodes will have a how-to title. So the first episode was How to Write Action. That was the Matt Bell episode. Today, it was How to Write More Dynamic Scenes. So pretty easy, right? But I forgot to mention that at the top. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Please support this show if you love this show. You can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash other ppl pod don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter that i do once a week it's free sign up at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast if you would like to watch this podcast check it out on youtube search for the show by name other ppl find the other people youtube channel and when you find it hit the subscribe button it's free you can also follow the show on social media, watch video clips on TikTok, on Instagram, or on Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you would like to email me, let me know what you think, tell me a story, give me some feedback. The email address for the show is letters at OtherPPL.com. And if you would like to read my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. If you would like to listen to me read it, I'm the narrator of the audiobook. So one more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right? So great time today with Peter Turchi. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back on Wednesday with a conversation with Wendell Stevenson, author of a terrific new novel called Margot. So stay tuned for that one. And I will talk to you soon. 